Isn't it great to be a Christian and to assemble and to gather even as we are tonight and rest assured that that worship that's done in spirit and in truth will not only, of course, be minded in the mind of God, but will be acceptable to Him. Jesus affirmed that, didn't He, in John the fourth chapter, verse 24. As I stand before you tonight, as always, we're so thankful for our membership, the membership here at Pippin, and also for any visitors that certainly choose to come our way. It's our trust that our worship service will truly be an edifying and encouraging thing to all of us. You perhaps notice on the wall to my left that tonight we're going to discuss a gentleman named Philip. He does, of course, occur in the sacred text of the Bible. You might appreciate already, though, the considerations of the following introductory remarks. Interesting that there are four gentlemen in the Bible by the name of Philip. Now tonight, of course, our interest will be but in one of them, and we probably will find that that will fill up our time, certainly. But I would ask you to notice that there was one of the apostles whose name was Philip. Furthermore, you appreciate almost immediately that there are the next two, one who is a Roman ruler. Luke chapter 3 verse 1 makes reference to him. And then, of course, there is that Philip who had ultimately a hand to play in the very death of John the Baptist in Matthew 14. The final Philip is one that you and I noticed was mentioned in the lesson text for tonight. Philip the Evangelist. I'd invite you to think with me for the next little while this evening about that Philip. And as we do so, I believe we'll each be encouraged greatly in our walk with Christ today. In fact, we're going to try to learn several lessons about Philip the Evangelist and see if they don't apply to my life and yours in ways that you and I can really use on a day-to-day -day basis. At the bottom of that slide, as we then look at Philip the Evangelist, why don't we then turn to the first encounter that we have with that man, the very first time we encounter him in the sacred text. You might notice it occurs in the sixth chapter of the book of Acts. Although we won't read the fullness of that chapter, you and I remember well the scene that unfolds before us on that occasion. The early church met with a difficulty. There was a problem. Some of the widows, especially the Greek ones, were being neglected in the daily ministration or being neglected by the Hebrews. That particular matter could have erupted into something so harmful and so very hurtful to the early church. However, the apostles dealt with it quickly. They dealt with it in such a powerfully efficient way. You may remember they determined in verse number 2, it's not good that we ought to leave the Word of God to serve tables. Their statement then was this, Look you out among you seven men that we may appoint over this business. The apostles made the determination that seven men were to be selected who could oversee this event and to make sure that the widows were not neglected. You may notice almost immediately that those seven men were to have some qualities, some characteristics, if you please. Let me ask you to notice verse number 3 of Acts chapter 6. This tells us what those characteristics were. The text interestingly says, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. And almost immediately you and I notice that then the listing in verse 5 gives us the name of those seven men, and one of them is Philip. Now this is the same Philip that later is called Philip the Evangelist, and we're going to study about him tonight. You'll notice that we're going to begin to list some of the characteristics that this man exhibited, 
And we're going to ask along the way if it wouldn't be fair to anticipate we should also exhibit the same. First of all, it is said that in order to be appointed as he was, the seven men were men of honest report. Let's think about that for just a moment. What does it mean to say that a person is a person of honest report? You may notice immediately that that word literally means in the original language to be approved or to be well spoken of. It would thus seem that in the neighborhood and in the community at large, Philip was a man that was highly respected. He could be trustworthy, he was reliable, he was well thought of for that for which he stood. It reminds us almost immediately, doesn't it, about the character of the name that he had. Now that doesn't have to do with the origination of the name Philip, but it rather has to do with things like this. Isn't it always encouraged in the Bible to live in such a way that our name is a name of honor? That when individuals hear your name and mine, they have a respect for the, that person, that man, that woman is a person of reliability, a person who really does pursue honorable things. In Proverbs 22, verse number 1, in the days of the long ago, a good name is rather to be chosen than great riches and loving favor more than silver and gold. What about then your name and mine? We notice here Philip apparently was a man whose name stood for honor and integrity and character and respect. He was one of the seven chosen and selected. You'll notice that for each Christian, aren't you and I rem reminded very powerfully in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. The Lord there did make statement about your light and mine. Question, throughout the days of the week, what do folks see when they look at your light and mine? Is it a light that would be better off being hidden? Or is it a light that is a bright and shining beacon that shines forth the beauty and majesty of the Word of God? Your light and mine. It much could be said apparently about that for which Philip stood, but then there is that passage in 2 Corinthians 8.21. Provide things honest in the sight of all men. It is still an encouragement from the Word of God that you and I really should pursue what's honorable. I suppose that every era and every civilization has faced circumstances whereby society at large seemingly had interest in that which was not so honorable. But yet those that love the Lord and those who are committed to His way will always, despite the external pressures, seek what's honorable. What else might be said about Philip? Not only was he a man of honest report, the text is quick to remind us that another one of the qualifications was to be full of the Holy Spirit. That's intriguing, isn't it? What does it mean to then say that Philip apparently was a gentleman, a man who was full of the Holy Spirit? Why don't we develop that this way? As often as the Holy Spirit is referenced in the New Testament, you and I can see a number of occasions whereby to be full of the Holy Spirit is to be an individual who is led exclusively by the leadership and instruction provided by the Holy Spirit. That appears to so strongly be the case in light of Philip, as we'll see throughout the lesson tonight. You'll notice at the bottom, a whole host of references in the Bible are found about people who were full of the Holy Spirit. 
Now, I've listed the references, but as you think back about them, Luke 4, verse 1, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 6, verse 5, these seven were full of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 7, verse 55, Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit. In Acts eleven twenty four, we find on that occasion, Barnabas was full of the Holy Spirit. In Acts 6, verse 3, of course, we have record in the very text before us about the great individual you and I are going to discuss, of course, as Philip. Isn't it true that some great people of the Bible were full of the Holy Spirit? Now, I know you and I don't have the miraculous measure of the Spirit like the first century church did. But nonetheless, as we're about to see, to be full of the Holy Spirit leads us to notice these things. Might I ask you to notice, what was it the Lord taught in John 3 verse 5 as He there interacted with and so powerfully taught Nicodemus you must be born again, he said. And when Nicodemus asked what that suggested and meant, wasn't it true? Jesus said, except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Every single person who's been baptized for the remission of sins has been baptized by virtue of and made contact through the nature of that water with the leadership and instruction and the life-saving message provided by the Holy Spirit. Maybe it's fair to say then at the top. It is said on a number of occasions then in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit dwells in Christians. I know that there's been much written and debated about the indwelling of the Holy Spirit throughout the, throughout the decades. The fact remains that it would seem, based on the presentation of the Word of God, that for that Spirit to dwell within us, that means that you and I are led by this which the Spirit has provided, the Word. The Holy Spirit wrote this. It's true that He empowered men to actually copy it down, but the Spirit was the one directing the message, and the Spirit was the one superintending that which was written. We we're told that in 2 Peter 1, verses 20 and 21. To then be full of the Spirit is to allow your mind and mind to be directed by, with dedication, the fullness of the instruction the Spirit has made available. It is for that reason, you'll notice, in passages like Romans 8, verses 9, 10, and 11, you and I are led by the Spirit. Now that again is not some supernatural leading. It is the leadership offered by that book you hold in your lap. Are you and I then like Philip in that are we led by this book exclusively or only when it's convenient? Only when it happens to suit my particular desires and opportunities in life. May we appreciate that Philip apparently was one who was full of this book in the sense that he was directed and exclusively thereby the message that it had to offer. As you think about that, note the last statement. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God, Romans 10 verse 17. But that's all the more interesting when you notice Ephesians 3 verse 17. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, how is it then that Christ's words dwell in me? The text says it's by the Word. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. May you and I notice then that when we allow the Spirit to develop within us, that's because we're using our life to follow the Word. What about the third lesson concerning Philip? The third one, the text also said another qualification was he had to be full of wisdom. Full of wisdom. 
as you and I develop that thought just a moment, consider these initial ideas. This idea seems to convey the thought of using knowledge in an appropriate or at least very concerted way. Very concerted way. But I might suggest that there appear to be a number of Bible verses that really take that generic idea of wisdom and really extend it powerfully to, to those that would be the followers of God. After all, isn't it true, there's a lot of people who are blessed with common sense. You may know them at work tomorrow, or you may have interaction with them as a neighbor, but the Bible has more to say about wisdom than just that. Doesn't it seem to be the case that wisdom, as it's often described in the Word of God, directly attaches to one who is able to skillfully use the Word of God? I would call to your attention Acts 6 verses 3 and 10. Now we've noted verse 3. Jump on down to verse 10 for just a moment. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. There the word wisdom is used directly to convey the thought of what it was that Stephen was preaching. He not only spoke with power, he not only preached that truth, but he did so with effectiveness. And he did so with an ability to convince those who heard him. Are you and I as equipped in the Word of God that we're able to discuss it with others in an effective and convincing way? Isn't it true that elders are such that that's one of their qualifications? They are supposed to be able to use the Word, Titus 1 verse 9, to convict and convince the gainsayers, those who would oppose it. And they are to be able to use the Word of God to do that. I would submit to you that in that light, think about what is said of Timothy. I would ask you to notice how long Timothy had been in the learning stage of being wise. All of us who are parents and grandparents should be so impressed by this observation. When Paul wrote to Timothy, he said, From a babe thou hast known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make thee what? Wise unto salvation. The wisdom that began to be developed in Timothy didn't begin when he was age 21 or even age 18. The text says from a babe, his parents, likely mother and grandmother, had instilled within him the proper appreciation of the Word of God and respect for it. And from that early age, wisdom began to be developed. No wonder in those lights how impressed you and I can be with how powerful it is to think of the development of wisdom that way. Philip had it. As you come near the bottom of that slide, notice then what else might be asserted about this gentleman. You'll notice that he was appointed. So apparently he met those three qualifications, and then when the apostles made that approach to him, he accepted the duty that was given to him. He was willing, apparently, to utilize his skills, his talents, his abilities, in light of this work that the apostles wished him to do. In other words, he was willing to serve. Isn't it true that the Word of God mentions on a number of occasions the impetus that you and I also have in that regard to utilize our gifts, as they're sometimes called, in the interest of the pursuit of the things of God? I would call our attention to 1 Peter 4 verse 10 in which there Peter directly commented about that very matter. Utilizing our gifts for the pursuit of that which is the will and the ministry of God. Are you and I doing that as thoroughly as we might be able? 
That's a question each of us individually can ask of ourselves and proceed to answer. Are we, like Philip, willing to serve? You'll notice as we close that slide, Paul would bring us to think of it this way in 2 Corinthians 12. It was near the close of that chapter that Paul, in such a remarkable fashion, said, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. Paul's love for the church in Corinth, his concern for them was such that he said, I will gladly spend and be spent for you. I will serve you. I will give of you what I'm able to give. Are you and I gladly willing to spend and be spent for the welfare of other Christians, for the welfare of the service of the kingdom of God? That's a telling question, isn't it? It's a demanding question. If we may use Philip as an example, certainly we would wish, of course, that answer to be yes. These first observations about Philip bring us to also note these matters as it relates to this consideration in service. After all, this isn't the only instance we have about Philip. I would ask you to notice a few more. At the top, you'll notice if we go two chapters forward, Philip is again the principal person of, of interest. You'll notice that there was a great persecution that developed after the stoning of Stephen. And that persecution was such that the apostles, in fact, remained in Jerusalem, but it says in Acts 8 verse 4, that the disciples themselves were scattered abroad, went everywhere preaching the word. As you think about that, notice what Philip did. The persecution did not stop him. In fact, that persecution only emboldened him, it seems, because he went to Samaria and he continued to preach. In fact, it was in that location that there was much good brought about. Acts 8 verse 12 says that when they heard Philip, Preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God, they were baptized, both men and women. Philip had a successful preaching ministry, didn't he? He continued to serve despite the persecution. Later on, a text that we'll revisit later tonight, we notice it was he who had a hand to play in that conversion of the Ethiopian eunuch. Maybe in light of all those things, maybe you and I can pause for a moment and revisit that somewhat briefly. And in so doing, we'll learn some additional lessons about Philip. I've tried to highlight it very, very swiftly. You'll notice the joy that was brought to Samaria. And you'll notice later, of course, the matters concerning that desert region to which Philip was commanded to go. It is all of that that brings us to the fifth observation. We've already learned Philip was willing to serve, but now notice, here was a successful preacher in Samaria, and yet he was told to leave that place and go somewhere else. Many of us today might think that doesn't sound logical. Why shouldn't I stay here where I'm having such success? And yet, would you notice with me in chapter 8, this interesting statement that's found. In verse number 26 of Acts 8 it says, and the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is desert. So you want me to leave Samaria and go down to a desert region? That's exactly what the angel told him. But did you notice? Philip did it. He responded, and thus, lesson five, he was obedient to that which was the direction of God. 
He didn't ask questions about this makes no sense. He didn't try to offer an alternate. He didn't try to alter an optional matter. He simply obeyed. There are times, isn't it, when there are many in our world who think that the matter of obedience should first be conditioned by my own convenience. Is it convenient for me? That doesn't matter. Our first and foremost interest is this, and we won't be judged on the day of judgment as to whether or not it was convenient. We'll be judged on were we obedient to that which God commanded. Sometimes it may not be easy, but we'd rather be faithful had we not. Notice again what Philip did. We we read in verse 26 what the command was. Notice how verse 27 begins. He arose and went. And doesn't that remind us of some of the remarkable faithful characters in the Bible? When God told Noah to construct an ark, not the first question entered, as far as we know, into Noah's mind. He didn't state the largeness of the task. He didn't state the unreasonableness of it. He simply did it. He proceeded to construct that ark as large a vessel as it was. Thus did Noah, according to all that God commanded him, so did he, Genesis 6.22. In this light, Philip obeyed. That obedience perhaps allows us to note this, and I've included it as a part of that fifth observation. Did you notice The verses that follow paint a rather interesting picture. It says in verse number 27, He arose and went, and behold, a man of Ethiopia, an eunuch of great authority under Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who had the charge of all her treasure and had come to Jerusalem for to worship, was returning and sitting in his chariot, read Isaiah the prophet. Then the Spirit said unto Philip, Go near and join thyself to this chariot. There's another commandment. So there was a chariot in the distance. Philip didn't know that person apparently, had never seen that eunuch before, and yet the Spirit said go, the angel rather said to go. One more time, how did Philip respond? It says in verse number 30, Philip ran thither to him. Are we gaining a picture of the enthusiastic and initiated response of Philip? Not only that, why didn't it bring us to lesson Number six, not only was he obedient, we notice that in fact he even ran and he initiated some of the features of this powerful conversion. I would ask you to notice again verse number 30. Philip ran thither to him and heard him read the prophet Isaiah. And have you ever noticed who the first spokesman was? It was Philip. Understandest thou what thou readest? Sometimes when you and I appreciate in our modern world, there's a great deal of interest in the Bible. Many people will read it. They'll have some exposure to it. They may even make various remarks as it relates to it. Here was a person reading out of a scroll of Isaiah. And Philip said, do you know what you're reading? Do you understand what you're reading? We would certainly conclude that it wasn't said in any condescending or derogatory fashion, just in honest inquiry. Do you understand what you're reading? And yet that opened up the fullness of a conversation and the segue into a conversion. Maybe that's a good lesson for you and me today. That person who has some interest in the Bible, maybe they're reading it or making some reference to it, 
maybe we ought to find an opportunity on occasion to very subtly but yet rather directly say, do you understand what that means? Have you ever thought about the instruction that's given in that verse you just read? I'd like to share it with you. Would you like to attend our Wednesday night Bible study class at the Pippin Church of Christ? We have a good Bible study, classes for all ages. We'd love to have you. Understandest thou what thou readest? You may notice what then occurs next. The eunuch now responds. As you and I think about this initiation, you and I are told as we think about the Word of God and the circumstances by which its utility is presented, here was an initiation. Doesn't it remind us somewhat what the Master Himself said in that great commission? Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. Mark 16, verses 15 and 16. Maybe those alone bring us to an additional observation. As you think about the way that this conversion unfolded, we notice that Philip initiated it, but now the eunuch says, How can I except some man guide me? You and I too would immediately observe that something about Philip is immediately learned next. For it says that the very text that this eunuch was reading is now mentioned for us, and so we know exactly where it was. It was in Isaiah 53. In particular, as that passage unfolded, the eunuch asked one more question. Would you notice what it was? Verse number 34. I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this? Of himself or of some other man? And almost immediately, you and I can make another conclusion. Because in the very next verse, Philip opened his mouth and began at that same scripture and preached unto him Jesus. It seems clear enough that Philip had a sufficient command of Scripture. He was very familiar apparently with that text in Isaiah and he could immediately use that to springboard into the full proclamation of Jesus and the gospel. But suffice it to say, he had to have a command of the Bible in order to do that. He had to have a command of the sacred text. It would have done little good for Philip to say, I don't know who the man's talking about. I don't know what that text means. May you and I have a knowledge of the Word of God, a working and effective knowledge such that when opportunities like that arise, we could then begin to preach Jesus from those passages, those prophecies, those particular considerations. Philip began at that same Scripture. That certainly does lend another importance to the attendance at all the services because when in Bible studies and worship services the Scriptures are expounded, you and I each can be benefited and put nuggets of truth into our, into our memory bank so we could use them in the proper way even as we teach others the Word of God. He preached from that same Scripture and forward the message of Jesus. Not only that, might we come, of course, to Lesson 8. Philip didn't stay in the Old Testament. He didn't just allow all the thoroughness of that Old Testament to be the central part of his message. Rather, he preached Jesus, the text says in Acts 8.35. That's the central point, isn't it? And it must be in ours. Jesus is the centerpiece in all the Bible. Isn't it true? Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13.8. The fact then, you and I, as we preach and teach, everything must revolve around the Master. 
He's the one that died on the cross. He's the one that shed His blood. It is on that basis He bought the church, Acts 20, 28. And He is its head, Colossians 1, 18. Surely then our preaching has to focus on the same. But did you note one more thing? Obviously it included baptism. If you preach Jesus, you have to preach baptism. You can't preach one without the other. And here we find that as this particular message proceeded, we don't know how many miles they may have ridden. It may not have been very long. But verse number 36 tells us this. As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What doth hinder me to be baptized? How did he know about baptism? It's not taught in the Old Testament. It's because Philip preached to him Jesus, and that includes baptism. And it was the eunuch who said, Here's some water. Why can't I be baptized? When you study with someone, don't you get excited at the thought when they reach the conclusion based on biblical passages, I need to be baptized. Can we do it tonight? It's always been a delightful thing when someone comes to that realization. And it's such a joyful exercise when you gather at the building. Maybe it's a Friday night. Maybe it's a Tuesday morning. But you baptize somebody into Christ. You may notice that lesson number eight then brings us to think again about the sweetness of that message of baptism. 1 Peter 4.11 still tells us, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. And God's oracles demand baptism, don't they? Surely then that brings us to lesson number nine. You'll notice that when they did come to this water, and so they stopped the chariot. Look at how it continues onward. Verse number 38 says, And he commanded the chariot to stand still. And they went both down into the water, both Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. Philip knew exactly how to baptize someone. He was very acquainted with the features of what a scriptural baptism was like. It was not a sprinkling, it was not a pouring, it was not any symbolic thing. This was exactly what a baptism is supposed to be, a burial. And Philip knew that. Aren't you then convicted with me and impressed about what this evangelist was like? Philip has many very great qualities, doesn't he? One by one, as you and I have looked at all of them, might we notice again the many examples found in the book of Acts that tell us exactly what baptism is like. It really is a burial, Romans 6, verses 3 and 4. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? It's a burial. And as you and I appreciate that fact, no wonder then we don't accept anything else, those that love the Lord, as a claim to baptism. It's a burial in water for the remission of sins. Philip knew that very well, and that's why both went down into the water. As you can well tell, lesson number 10 then comes before us. Ten lessons about Philip. That takes us to notice this. The very last verse in Acts chapter 8 says, But Philip was found at Azotus, and passing through he preached in all the cities till he came to Caesarea. Philip preached in all the cities in that region, even until he came to the actual city of Caesarea. That now takes us back to Acts 21, the lesson text that was read earlier tonight. Would you go back to that text with me and notice how it follows from Acts chapter 8? Acts 21, verse number 8 now says, And the next day we that were of Paul's company 
departed and came into Caesarea. The same Caesarea mentioned back in Acts chapter 8. But now it says, And we entered into the house of Philip the Evangelist, which was one of the seven, and abode with him. We don't know exactly how many years transpired between Acts chapter 8 and Acts chapter 21. But we still find the picture of a faithful man. A person who was a preacher who had, re who had reared his family in a godly way and who had preached the gospel to untold individuals. There's many reasons to be impressed with Philip, don't you think? Philip the evangelist. As we've looked at these ten lessons about him tonight, why don't we look at this last slide that's a conclusion slide. And not that we'll rehearse all of the ones that we've learned, but can we at least make a broad appreciation and summary of this man named Philip? We first encountered him trying to solve a problem in the church at Jerusalem. But he didn't remain there and went other places. But everywhere he went, we have a picture of a man using his talents in the service of God, full of the Holy Spirit, directed by the teaching of God's Word. And he preached and did so even being a critical part of the conversion of the Ethiopian nobleman. All the while, we've learned much about his command of Scripture, his knowledge of it, and his ability to use it effectively. I hope all of us will strive, of course, to be the same as we would be encouraged to be in the Bible. But it is true at the very bottom, we see a man that was faithful all throughout his days. Are you and I faithful tonight? As the years pass, are we committed to be faithful in every way? I hope that we each are and shall be. But tonight, of course, that's a question that we can answer at the moment. Are you faithful at this very minute? The Lord Jesus Christ demands that you and I be faithful. If you as a person who have never yet obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, but yet you know that He died for your sins, and you know that there is a plan of salvation, and you know that at this moment you're lost, don't leave this building in that condition. We could celebrate and in such a happy way tonight assist you in your baptism. Of course, that must be preceded by your belief and your repentance and your confession. But if we could help you in that way tonight, we'd be happy to do it. If you have become a member of the body of Christ and you have known the luxuries and all the blessings attached to that membership, but you have strayed from faithfulness, you have not followed the initiative that perhaps Philip exhibited, why not come back to your first love this evening? If we could pray to God on your behalf, we'd be delighted to do it. We would only ask that during this convenient time, you let us know in what way we could assist. And right now, this is a convenient time. Why don't you come? While together we stand and while we sing.